Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. Great to see you preparing for Rosh Hashanah. It's so good to see all your faces. It's so good to be here. There's um, an excitement in the air in the land of Israel. It feels a little bit nervous. Um, curious to see what's coming with the new year. Soon Israel is going to be teeming with tourists from all over the world. Sukkahs are going to be around the country. It's like we're like preparing ourselves. It's like getting ready. This is like the highlight of the year. And the Arugot farm is just going to be hopping. But this week is the week before Rosh Hashanah. There's no hiding from it. It's the day that we are going to stand before the king. And it is the it's arguably one of the greatest weeks of the year if we play it right. And, you know, when the Torah says you shall not worship other gods before me, that means that humans are going to worship. It's in the design of being a human. You're going to worship something, a god, a religion, a flag, a leader, an ideology, nature, and the climate crisis. You'll perform rituals uh, to that ideology. You'll, you know, you'll do things that have no real effect on the real problem. But if nature is your God and climate crisis is your religion, um, then you will go outside and recycle your little aluminum can as your little ritual and your religious act of sacrifice. And you'll make even big sacrifices to what you worship. And there's no book in the world that understands human nature more than the Torah. And understanding that humans have a natural tendency to worship the Torah is saying, worship the truth, worship the good, the ultimate good, practice morality. Don't worship anything other than God, because anything below that is going to end up being twisted and wrong. And in Rosh Hashanah, that's exactly what we do. We make God the king of our life. We declare God as king of the universe. We have nothing else before us, nothing before him. He is God. But the question is, how do we do that? How do we really stand before God? That's not easy. I mean, if you really meditate and think about standing before the truth, no one knows the truth of your life. No one can understand your situation, not only because they can't possibly know all of the details of who you are and what you've gone through, but also because their life situation taints their view and then creates a bias that they can't really allow them they just, they can't really ever judge you in any real way. But when you stand before the creator, you stand before the truth of your life. Doing that once a year, it's one of the most powerful religious experiences in the world. Because when you stand before God, you stand alone. You stand with most just a mirror because you know the truth. You know what you've been through. You know where you are. You know all the details. You stand before that truth. And wherever you are, say, God, you're the king. And that's what I want to talk about this fellowship. And the Bible tells us, you know, what does this have to do with anything? Like blowing the shofar, what's that really about? And so it tells us, you know, when a king walks into the room, that's what they would do. They would like blow a trumpet. They would blow a shofar, announce the king is coming. If you look at Psalm 98, what does it say? With trumpets and with the sound of the shofar, blast the sound before the king Hashem, for he is coming to judge the earth. That's really what the shofar signifies. It's like, we're blasting the shofar. All right. The king is coming and he's coming to judge the earth. He's coming to judge every one of us. And to have a time in our life where we really stand and we are in total humility. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. There's really no excuses. It's just who we are. And so approaching the day where the shofar is the main event, a yom truah, um, let's get back to the basics. Because from the foundations of the Hebrew language, we can usually unlock a deeper meaning to the experience. So we're talking about the shofar. Look at the word shofar in Hebrew. If you see, shofar in Hebrew comes from the same root as the word shippur. 
which means improvement. Lehishtaper means to get better. And so when you hear the call of the shofar, wherever you're at in life, it's a call to get better. It's a call to say, yeah, the journey isn't over yet. <laughs> this is just one of many years to come. And we're calling you to get better, lehishtaper, to strive higher, to break through our limitations. There's a place inside us where our will is absolutely one and aligned with the will of our creator. And when we sound the shofar calling us, it's reaching out in, it's like reaching out to us, but at the same time, we are reaching out to God, striving to get closer toward God. That call outside of us becomes interwoven within the call that's inside us. It's the same call inside us. We have a call that's calling us to grow, to expand, to flourish. And that call is just reminding us of our inner call that's there anyway. That spark of holiness that's inside us, that breath of God, that breath of God is from the like from his depths to our depths. It's really one. And so I read a beautiful line from Rav Kook, the first chief rabbi of Israel on Teshuva. It's in chapter nine of one of his greatest books, Orota Tshuva. And here's what Rav Kook says. He says like this, the will to improve and live a life of Teshuva isn't another superficial desire. It is the very essence of the Jewish spirit. What is the essence of the spirit of the Torah? It is to live a life where we are trying to improve, trying to get better, trying to grow. That's the essence of this whole life. Israel means to struggle with man and struggle with God. What are we struggling with? We're struggling to improve, to lihishtaper, to shofar, to shipur. That's what this is all about. So we're not standing in judgment to feel bad about ourselves. We're standing in judgment because... Let's say if you're trying to lose weight, every once in a while, you got to step on the scale and see where you're at. Every once in a while, you got to stop and be like, okay, how is this diet going? I step on the scale and then I look and I'm like, okay, that's not where I really wanted to be at this stage in the game of my diet. But at least I know now I got to have a time where I say, cut, stop. I want to know who am I? Where am I? I want to know in order that I can continue on my journey of drawing closer and closer to God, closer and closer to the truth. That's what Rosh Hashanah is all about. It's such a personal holiday. And that's why Rosh Hashanah, it's unlike all of the other biblical holidays. It really is a holiday for the entire world. It doesn't matter. It's, it's the creation of Adam. It's for every human being. Like there are some holidays that were gifts given to the people of Israel where the nations are invited to join. But Rosh Hashanah, that was given to Adam and Eve. It's the creation of the world. Everyone inside them ultimately has that breath of God that is one with the creator himself. And it's all drawing us back to source. And so with that inner essence, trying to get closer to the truth, trying to seek after the good, let's take a, a moment and kick off our fellowship with a prayer. Hashem, Master of the universe, King of kings, creator of everything and everyone. We're approaching the new year. Please bless us this year with a good and sweet year. We've gathered here to prepare for these great days to make you king of our lives. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for what you are doing in the land of Israel. We thank you for choosing us to live out our lives, seeking your truth, seeking what's right, seeking what's noble and what's good. Help us take the Torah we learned today and bring it into our hearts and into our lives. Help us stop the dominoes of last year and start a new year fresh. Bless us with a renewed spirit. Bless us with renewed strength, with a new vision and with renewed love. When we hear the shofar, this Rosh Hashanah, let our hearts be open as we invite you in. Hashem, bless everyone that's gathered here live today. Bless them from this place. Bless them 
from this land. Bless all of the people of this fellowship that will be tuning in. Bless them with a beautiful year. Guard them. Protect them. Shine your light into their lives. Shine a light into their new year. Amen. All right, my friends. I want to tell you I read this beautiful line from Abraham Joshua Heschel about prayer. And here's what he says. He says, prayer is invitation. An invitation to God to intervene in our lives. To let his will prevail in our affairs. It is opening a window to him in our will. An effort to make him Lord of our soul. We submit our interests to his concern and seek to be allied with what is ultimately right. And I think that that line there really sums up the heart of the prayer of Rosh Hashanah. To blast the shofar and say, whatever we've done, God, right now, we want you to be king. You know, it's hard to stand in such truth, but for one day, as we kick off the year, if you stand in that even for just a few moments of authentic prayer, it has the ability to just shift. It's like, you know, we're just starting a new domino effect. So you want to start the dominoes off right. You know, if you're just a few degrees off when you leave Israel, if you stay a few degrees off, by the time you're supposed to get to New York, you'll end up in Miami. So it's like, wait a minute, when we start off this year, if we can just start off aligned right, everything else will fall into place. That's really the goal. And so how do I stay on course? I have a trick. I have a trick because I often veer from the course and then I have Tehila who whacks me back with a Nerf bat, kind of like a, a sponge at the end. So it doesn't hurt, but it's sort of like re redirecting me on the path of goodness and righteousness. So she has been developing this idea for the last week. We've been learning it together, studying it together, and I just absolutely love it. It's so new. It's so innovative. It's a Tehillah Gimpel original, and I just I can't wait to share it with you. And so here is our scholar-in-residence, Tehillah. Hi, everyone. This past portion was the portion of Nitzavim, and year after year, I never stop marveling at the Hashgacha, the providence, that this portion comes out exactly when we're in the height of our tshuva process, our repentance process in El coming upon Rosh Hashanah. Now, the portion starts out using the word Nitzavim. Let's look at this word for a moment. In 29 verse 9, it says, Atem Nitzavim Hayom, you are standing this day before the Lord your God. And it goes on to really emphasize, it's not just you standing here, but every man, every woman, every child of this generation, of every future generation, all of you are standing before Hashem. Now, you know, the regular word for standing in Hebrew is la'amod, amad. That's like just standing. Like if I was thirsty now and I wanted to go up and get a drink, I would just say, you know, omit it, standing. Then there's this word in our portion, nitzavim, which comes from the root of like yetziv, netziv, a pillar, standing strong, standing at attention. It's a word you would use to describe, let's say, like how you would stand if you were saluting a commanding officer or if you were, well, in the presence of the king. So it's not like we're just coincidentally standing. We're standing, standing alert at attention. It's really what we are doing on Rosh Hashanah, like we are all standing before Hashem as the king. So what's the meaning of this kind of standing? What is this calling out to every generation to stand before Hashem in this way? So I was really trying to think about what does this mean? What are we called to be standing for? You know, we always say on Rosh Hashanah that we coronate God as the king. That's one of those things that sounds nice on paper, but what does it actually mean? Like, what is the spiritual posture of coronating God as king? God's not our literal king. He doesn't like pave the roads or make schools. We don't pay him taxes. He's our creator every day of the week. What does that mean that on Rosh Hashanah, we make Hashem king? What does that look like? What does it feel like? Well, it starts, you know, with this command to stand before Hashem, to be Nitzavim. So I'm trying to understand what this means. And I keep on reading and Moshe says, you're standing here before Hashem and then references two historic references. First, he says, make sure to remember what happened in Egypt. Verse 15, it says, for you know how we dwelled in the land of Egypt. Moshe says, remember all the evil you saw there, separate yourself from that. So he tells us, remember life in Egypt. Then he goes on to describe what's going to happen in the last generation if we don't 
heed all of the warnings he's giving us here. He says, one day the nations will look at the land of Israel in verse 21. This is the later generation, your descendants who will rise after you along with a foreigner who comes from a distant land. And they'll say upon seeing the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord struck it. So it's like this warning, there's going to be destruction if you don't listen. In verse 22, it says, sulfur and salt have burned up the entire land. It cannot be sown, nor can it grow anything. No grass will sprout upon it. It will be like the overturning of Sodom and Gomorrah. So meaning there are two references after Moshe tells us that we're all standing before Hashem. He says, think about the story of Egypt and the story of Sodom. Now suddenly it struck me that in each of these two stories, there's a primary character who is described with this posture of mitzavim, of standing like a pillar. The first one is the wife of Lot, who is described as becoming a netziv melach. The exact same word that Moshe is using to tell us how we stand before Hashem is how the wife of Lot is, is described. The second one is Miriam. When we were living in Mitzrayim, there was a decree on the boys to be thrown into the river, and Miriam has Moshe in a basket, and it says that Miriam, she stood in this kind of way. The same word is used to describe how she stood to watch Moshe. So for me, that was like a like a confirmation that the Torah is hyperlinking us to these two characters that are described having this pillar-like posture. It's like a hyperlink on the internet when you click, you know, when you're reading one article and it says if you click here and you'll go to another article, it's like sending us, oh, you don't understand what it means to be Nitzavim, to be standing before Hashem. Go to these two characters and you're going to understand. So I want to try to examine this. Let's look at Lot's wife. Lot is told by the angel not to look back at the destruction of stone, but wife, Lot's wife does. And she becomes, at least according to most of the interpretations of the verse, a nativ, a pillar of salt. She's left in this standing position, frozen in time. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this. Like, why aren't they supposed to look back? And why is it so tempting to look back? You know, don't just like jump up and answer like whatever you were told. Like, actually think about it for a second. Like, I really gave this a lot of thought. What is wrong with looking back? Shouldn't you be encouraged to look back? If the city of Sodom was evil, isn't it a good thing to see Hashem's justice being done in the world? It's kind of a lesson, right? Like to look at evildoers getting their punishment. So let's try to get into Lot's wife's head for a second. The most compelling explanation I saw was of the Radak. The Radak says that she was weak in faith and she was looking back to see if indeed the city was destroyed. The angel told them the city is gonna be destroyed, but will it actually be destroyed? So now imagine Lot's wife. Why is she turning around? She wants to see if it really happens. What does that mean? Why does she care if it's happening? Because, you know, the angel said, Sodom is an evil place. Shouldn't you want to leave anyway, regardless of what's going to happen? It's an evil place. God doesn't like it there. You should leave regardless of the outcome. What is she doing? She wants to see if maybe it was not, in fact, destroyed. Now, let's say she looked back and saw the sun is shining, the birds are chirping. What would she have done? She probably would have gone home and had another day of being awful in Sodom. She wanted to get away with whatever she could get away with for as long as she wasn't getting in trouble for it. That's why she's not supposed to look back because Hashem wants her to demonstrate if she's leaving Sodom because she knows Sodom is evil or because she's just trying to avoid having bad things happen to her. It reminds me of like, you know, politicians today, instead of being leaders and guiding people down like, you know, a wise, well thought out path, they do public opinion polls first and then see whatever the people already want to hear and say that, base their policies on the outcome that they want to get, you know, which is getting elected. I'll say whatever it takes to get elected. She becomes this pillar of salt because she's just trying to figure out what she can do, how she can navigate the situation without getting into too much trouble. So she becomes a monument for all ages in front of Sodom of what it means to be a sodomite. And then we have Miriam. Now, interestingly, Miriam's story is the absolute inversion of that. There was no doubt about the existence of the degree, decree. Paro gave a decree. The outcome is pretty much known and definitive that the boys are going to be thrown into the river. The question that she had to face was how to live with that seemingly definitive destruction. The Midrash teaches that the husbands and the wives in that generation separated from one another. They stopped having families because they didn't want babies to be killed. And Miriam was the one who convinced her parents, Amram and Yocheva, to get back together. She said, Paro is annihilating the boys. You're annihilating future boys and girls. What was she saying? She was saying to her parents, the outcome's not in our hands. Even in the face of seemingly certain suffering, we aren't, we do the good. We build our families of, you know, God-fearing righteous people because it is the good for the sake of good. It is good to raise upright people. And if you're committed to that, you need to be committed to that no matter what the outcome you think is going to happen, right? What outcome you think is going to come, right? She's, I'm not, you don't do this for your favor and benefit. You do it because it's right. And now look at where Miriam stands. Moshe is in the basket facing seemingly obvious and inevitable death, 
Like, what did Hagar do when Yishmael seemed like he was going to die? She stuck him under the bushes and turned away. She didn't want to see the bad thing happening. She couldn't face it. Miriam does the opposite. And that's when we see this word that we're waiting for. But Tietzev Miriam, the same word used for standing in our portion. She doesn't just stand. She stands and she stares it in the face. She looks straight ahead. She's hoping for miraculous salvation. But that's not a condition that she makes. She's going to face whatever happens, even if it's destruction. And she will stand upright with a clean and clear heart, knowing that she did the good for the sake of good, not what was in it for her or the outcome she thought would come. She doesn't flinch. She doesn't look away. She has like a determined look in her eyes, staring at what seemingly seems like, you know, inevitably ahead. And from that is born the salvation of Israel. From that, we have the foundational story that brings forth Moshe that's going to save us from Egypt. So now if we come back to the portion, we see this standing before God is essentially about standing at that crossroads between these two postures that you can have when you're standing before Hashem. The verse says, those of you here today and those of you not here today, every generation, every time, will always be facing the same question, that same crossroads of how to stand before Hashem. And it's right here in the verse. The verse is the Lot's wife's model and the Miriam model. It says in verse 18, it will be when he, such a person, hears the words of this oath, that he will bless himself in his heart, saying, I will have peace even if I follow my heart's desire. Is that not the voice of, wife's, of, Lo, of Lot's wife saying, maybe I can get away with a little more evil. Maybe the bad outcome that's been prom prophesied will skip over me. Let me try to get as, away with as much as I can get away without getting in trouble, without getting in too much trouble. And it said the Lord will not be willing to forgive people who live like that. He's, all the curses in this book will rest upon him. It's the outcome of taking that posture before God that will lead to that destruction. But then the verse models Miriam. It says, you know, when the chapter gets to the bottom line in verse 28, it says, the hidden things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things apply to us and to our children forever that we will fulfill the words of the Torah. Meaning in the end of the day, the outcomes are hidden. We have no clue how Hashem will guide things to unfold. The revealed things apply to us and our children. And what is the revealed thing? To fulfill the word of the Torah. Meaning when we fulfill the good, the good is that it's expressed through the Torah, through godliness, literally for its own sake, and to courageously face whatever will happen, like Miriam, facing whatever will unfold and choosing to stand before Hashem, especially on Rosh Hashanah, to face the peril, the adventure, the opportunity that will unfold however Hashem unfolds it. And that's maybe what it means to stand before God, to make him king. That means to make good, to make godliness, the king over your life, the guiding light of your life, no matter what the outcome will be. And being able to stand like Miriam at the Nile and say, Hashem, I am doing the good for the sake of doing good, for the sake of following your will. And I will face with a clear heart whatever comes after that. So, you know, I think the Torah is guiding us to that posture uh, as we stand before Hashem and make him king on Rosh Hashanah. So, have a Shana Tova Umetuka, a happy, sweet new year, my friends. And uh, I bless you to really have all your prayers answered and to live a life of godliness and uprightness in this coming year and for all the years to come after. Bye, guys. Thank you, Tehila. So if you guys pay attention to that, you know, Tehila is saying, that the Torah is saying with Lot's wife, who's looking back, don't look back in the past to see if you were blessed. And Miriam, it's like, well, don't really anticipate in the future to see if you will be blessed, but you just want to do what's right because it's right. We do what's true because it's true. That's what it means to lead Yetzev. It's like, I am standing at attention. You give me the order and I'm going to do it no matter what. And you think about that Parsha, it's one of the most unique Parshas because it says, um, but not only with you am I making this covenant and this oath, but with those standing here today before our Lord, our God, and also those who are not here with us today. For all future generations, this is the base of the covenant. It is to be committed to God, to be committed to good, no matter what. And, you know, if you think about it, I mean, everyone knows this intuitively, I think, but being a believer is a superpower. I mean, when you make God the king of your life, you're given powers that secular people can't access. When you think about the people that can stand up to tyranny, it's only with the idea of hope and the power of faith 
that people can really rise up. That's why the communist regime's religion is outlawed because it's that faith that actually gives people superpowers to stand up when other people would just kind of cower and hide. It's really the only force powerful enough to stand up to evil. And, you know, if you think about, like, there's scientific studies at this point. I mean, it's really systematic. And if you sort of take the studies down, just if you can Google it, really, type in, like, does faith affect longevity? And you'll see right away that people that are believers live nine and a half years longer than people that don't have faith in their life. That's just... Just like, oh, thank you. That's just like a screenshot from Google. You can just read that up. Anyone can read that. You can just type that up. People that have faith, people that have community, they're going to live nine and a half times longer than people that don't. And in fact, what I did this fellowship is I just compiled a few of the promises that God made and a few of the outcomes. So here's what it says. And these are all can all be backed up. You can Google all of these. Religious people tend to smoke less, donate and volunteer more. They have more social connections. They get and stay married more. They have more kids. They live longer, earn more money, experience less depression, report greater happiness and fulfillment in their lives. I was like, wow, this is just wonderful. Religious involvement and spirituality are also associated with Better health outcomes, coping skills, less anxiety and depression, less suicide. Religious believers, like I said, live about nine and a half years longer than those who did not have any religious affiliation in their obituary. Okay, well, thank you, God. <laughs> that is just like you promised that if you live this way, you will be blessed. And now we have like modern science and studies that span across the world. And we really see that it's true. In like the big picture, it's better to be a believer. But there's a problem with that. On one hand, it's okay. The Shekhinah is the spirit we must emulate to thrive. You live with the Shekhinah in your life. You live with God's presence in your life. You're going to thrive. You're going to have all of those blessings that I just cited. Health, longevity, wellness, wealth. It's like you got it all. Life is better. But what happens? You know, why are we believing? Hmm, are we believing so that we get that? Something really interesting there. Something really interesting happens because there's a mechanism that we're going to get to in just a second, like a foolproof authenticity mechanism. It doesn't work if you're not authentic. It doesn't work if you're not real. Because I personally, I refuse to believe anything that makes me weak. That's just a decision that I've taken upon myself. We were created to flourish, to grow. My faith empowers me. And although the world is constantly selling me a whole bunch of bad ideas and demoralizing ideas, wrong ideas, I just refuse to believe any of them. Anything that makes me weak, I just don't believe because God wants us to be strong. Yirat Shamayim, when we talk about fear of heaven, and that's said a lot in the, around the days of awe, the, the, the judgment day of Rosh Hashanah, fear of heaven is not that I'm scared of God or even the consequences of my actions. I really feel like that's missing it. A fear of heaven is a fear of losing contact with heaven. It's fear of losing my relationship with God. People that just exist secularly, they're just miserable. Tehillah's brother, who's a brilliant doctor in the Technion, told me last week that secular society, the way it's structured today, people would not be able to sustain themselves as a society without antidepressants. Their lives are so incompatible with happiness that the only thing that's keeping them functional and on their computers and in their cubicles, slaves to this matrix system and Netflix and all the video games, the only thing that's keeping them Functional is the ability to distract themselves and take a pill that somehow makes it through the day because secular modern society is incompatible with all of the studies of the things that bring people happiness. And so we know that life outside the Garden of Eden is not easy. We're told that from the get-go. It's like misery, just being, is like the default state of being in the absence of a sustaining meaning. You're just going to exist. It's not going to be good. It's like hunger is the default state of your body without food. Misery is the default state of being 
without sustaining meaning. So you got to feed your body food so you're not hungry. You have to feed your soul meaning so it's not miserable. We desire meaning. We want purpose. We want connection. We want love. We want truth. We want family. If we deny ourselves those things, our state of just existing will not be good. And so people that violate their relationship with God and they sink into nihilism and lose the meaning and value of life, well, that's something precious. That's something to cherish. I fear losing that. That's Yerachamayim. That's fear of heaven. It's like fear based on my love of life. My Not a fear of God, but it's a fear of losing God in my life. But here's the question, because it's laid out pretty clearly. First, it's a promise in the Torah. If you live as a believer, you're going to be blessed. But then we see like, wow, scientific studies really show that. The people that live longest in the world are all faithful people. But here's a real issue. And that's what Tehillah was pointing at. Hmm. Am I really looking back at the studies? Am I looking forward with anticipation that those studies better apply to me? Am I serving God or am I serving myself? Am I serving the Torah? Am I keeping the Torah so I get blessed? Well, how sincere is that? Like, that's not really service of anything. I'm just ultimately really, really serving myself. I really am looking back just like Lot's wife. And that's, Mendoza Hashanah is telling us to fight against that. And so I think it's one of the most confounding issues for a real religious person. You know, what are we really serving here? Ultimately, obviously all of us want to be blessed, but on the other hand, we don't want to do it only to be blessed. That's just not sincere. So my Rosh Hashiva, Avot Neo, Rav Re'ema Cohen always said, the most important prayer in all of Jewish liturgy is God purify my heart that I may serve you in truth. Purify my heart that I can serve you truly because I know that I have all these interests and I have all these fears and I have all these desires and I do want to be blessed. But God, help purify my heart that when I live my life, I'm really going to try to do good for the sake of good. And then what you see is there is a fail safe for authenticity. Because on one hand, I have so many desires, I have so many interests, I have fears, I have wants, I want to live my life, but I want to do it good. But there is something mysterious about believing in God, living in a relationship, this fail-safe for authenticity. It says that God is a bochen levavot. He's able to judge our hearts. What does that really mean, judge our hearts? Like if you're doing what you're doing in your religious life because you want to receive the good personally, it's almost automatically going to drop the benefit of the good that you're trying to seek. Religious people are happier people. That's proven. But if you decide to start acting religious because you want to be happy, it won't work. It's a failsafe for authenticity. If you serve others, let's say you want to go visit the sick because you think it will make you feel better, it won't really work either. If you go to the sick because you really want to love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to walk away from visiting the sick, appreciating your health, appreciating life, feeling good that you've helped someone else. But if you intentionally go to visit the sick because you're kind of looking for an upper to make yourself feel better, when you go visit that sick, there's a failsafe for authenticity. It doesn't work. God somehow judges our hearts. And then the blessing comes only when you serve your purpose selflessly. When you go beyond yourself, you act beyond yourself, then yourself is blessed. It's like an amazing mechanism. So you can only be blessed personally when the outcome is not what you're looking for. You're not looking for the outcome of blessing. You're just doing what's right because it's right to try to be as authentic as possible. And so one time a year on Rosh Hashanah, when we blast the shofar, we declare God as king. And we try to make God the king of our lives. And in some ways, that shofar is a prayer. Yes, it's a religious ritual, but that ritual, that sound is just another form of prayer. Usually we have prayer and thought. And so, you know, we like formulate an idea and then we'll ask a question. Thought came to mind. And then we'll say like, well, you know, what kind of life do I want to live this coming year? You've asked the question now. Now you open yourself up for revelation. That's really like a form of prayer and thought. You're formulating the idea. You ask the question. And then you wait for revelation. And 
uh, people that are maybe kind of on the fence, they don't really know what to believe. Maybe they're a little bit cynical. They're like, well, who are you asking? <laughs> and they would say, well, you're asking yourself. I'm like, you're asking yourself. Well, if yourself already knows the answer, why do you need to ask? And so you don't need to ask in the first place. And that's something to think about. But you ask yourself, what do I want my life to look like this coming year? And an image will come. Ideas will appear. Where do those ideas, where does that guidance come from? It seems like it comes from the ground of all being and the source of all thought. Somehow those thoughts emerge and prayers opening up a place in your life to allow God's will to enter. The ideas come through you in thoughtful prayer. So when you ask, you have to, you're opening yourself up to receive those thoughts that will come through you. So in that way, prayer is a way of reaching beyond yourself to align yourself with who you were created to be. That's beautiful. But when we hear the shofar, we're doing something different. We're doing something, I don't know if it's deeper, but it's, it's a different movement of the soul. And there are two aspects of the shofar. And we see that in the davening, in the Jewish service, there are two sets of shofar blasts. One before the Amidah, the silent prayer after of Musaf, and one after the silent prayer. There are two sets. And really from the sages of Israel, it seems like there are two aspects to the, so, the shofar blast itself. It can be divided into two spirits. One is the spirit of coronation. God is the king. We are declaring that God is one, that God created everything, that all of us are his subjects. Celebration of the king. It's like we are announcing the king's arrival. But then there's another idea, another spirit to the shofar. And that's not our announcing the coming of the king, but it's actually our cry. Our cry before our father in heaven. Literally like, oh, it's like a cry. That sound of the shofar is our cry. Now, those are two different spirits. One is almost a celebration. And Rosh Hashanah is one of the happiest holidays. I mean, when I was in yeshiva, it was literally hours of dancing, letting the king come in to the palace. And we are going to just welcome the king like it's just <laughs> party like it's 1999. The king is coming and we are there to celebrate. But that other side of the shofar, that's a crying to our father in heaven. That's a totally other spirit. That's why one of the soundings of the shofar is called the standing shofar and the sitting shofar. One is a little bit more personal. One isn't us all coming together to declare God as king. One is, I'm declaring God as king in my life. But my life is broken. And so from this broken place, I'm calling out to God. And so I want to talk about that. You know, when you look at thousands of years of biblical history, we're guided to two characters that take us to the shofar and take us actually to Rosh Hashanah. The first one is Abraham. Abraham is the first person to stumble upon a shofar. It's not a shofar that he blasts, but it's the first shofar that he sees when the ram's horns get tangled into the bush as he's about to sacrifice Isaac. That's the first time we see a shofar in the Torah. And we're told on Rosh Hashanah at the very beginning of the prayers for the shofar, remember Abraham, remember the covenant, the binding of Isaac. That's what this sound of the shofar represents. So I want to I want to keep that in mind, and I want to put it in the back of our heads, and I want to go to the second character because the second character will actually really open up Abraham's story for us in a totally new way, I believe. And so the second character is Job, and this is an idea that I gleaned from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. So first, I want to learn the story together the story of Job. It's one of the most mysterious books in the Bible. And the sages of Israel tell us that the story of Job first is not meant to be read as a literal story of history, but more similar to a midrash. It's giving over an idea. It's forcing us to think. It's forcing us through the story to pray that story to God. And so the right way to read the book of Job is not like a biography or an autobiography or a history book, 
but to read it like a prayer that we offer up to God. And so what I want to do now is I just want to give people a little bit of background. And I'm just going to read the first few verses of the book of Job. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to tie it all together because the sages of Israel tell us that this story happens on Rosh Hashanah. That's key. It's the only one of the stories of the prophets that happens on this holiday. So somehow this story is key for us to understand. And so chapter one, verse one, here's how the story goes. There was once a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, tamim, an upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. We're told Job is a tzaddik. He's a wonderful person, a member of this fellowship, a great man. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 ox, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So I want you guys to know, in the Arugot farm now, we have about 110 sheep. It's a lot of sheep. It's a lot. It's a lot of work maintaining those sheep. For Job to have 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500, it's like those numbers are not really normal numbers. In ancient times, I don't think that's even sustainable. That is like a, the, the most powerful king of all of the Eastern world would have such a thing. So already it's like alluding, guys, don't take this story so literally. It's giving you astronomical numbers that how would they be able to feed in graze seven? It's just impossible. So that's the first hint that this story is something that's beyond the natural. We're learning something through this story. So we have a rich man, a blessed man, beautiful family, money, possessions. He's got it all. He's made it. He's living the American dream. Job, the righteous man. Okay, we continue. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day. And he would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So their family is beautiful. They're having meals together. They're living the dream. And so it was, the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and maybe cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. So Job not only took responsibility for himself, but he woke up with a Judean morning, early in the morning, and immediately gave sacrifices to God on his behalf and on behalf of all of his family, guarding them, blessing them, praying for them. A righteous man. Who could imagine a more beautiful picture? Isn't that really what we all want? Just let us live the life of Job. All of a sudden, there's a twist in the plot. So now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to here and from there, all around the earth and walking back and forth on it. And so that already is the first um, sign that we're talking about Rosh Hashanah. Because spiritually, we're told that Rosh Hashanah, the angels gather around God, and there's literally like a court on each one of us. We stand before the king, and we have angels that will represent our case. And they'll say, but Jeremy, he really meant well. And he didn't mean it when he did that. And that mistake that he did, no, but his intentions were very good. And look at this mitzvah that he did. And he did this really good. But then there's a prosecuting angel. And that prosecuting angel, that's really the only time in the Hebrew Bible where Satan really takes a role. And his role is the prosecuting angel. He's the one that judges us. And there's a courtroom and there's evidence. And these angels are going back and forth, just like what's happening here with Job. And so the Lord said to Satan, this is verse eight, have you considered my servant Job? 
There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So God says, here's Job. It was as if I created this whole world just that Job would exist, a blessed man who blesses me, who lives in harmony with me. We have the greatest thing going on, me and Job. This is why I created the world. Satan says, nah, nope. Sorry. Verse nine, Satan answers the Lord and says, did Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Of course he loves you and blesses you and prays to you, God. You've given him everything. But now, let's put this to test. Stretch your hand out and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you and your face. Maybe Job is only doing what's good because he's getting the blessing. Maybe he's only blessing Israel because he wants to be blessed. So God says, no, I know his heart. It's not true. It's not true. He's true. He's authentic. He's serving God because he believes in God. And the Lord says, okay, behold, all that Job has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and the book of Job begins. And in short, the book of Job is one huge tragedy. Job loses everything. Loses his wife. He loses his wealth. He loses his children. He loses his health. All of the blessings that we saw at the beginning are all taken from him. And you see at the end of the book, a broken person, Job. Broken. And at that point, that's when we pray. Because all of us have so much brokenness in our hearts, brokenness in our lives, but brokenness. And all we want was to be good. All we wanted was to serve God. And then we look at Abraham, who is really just a mirror of Job at this point in his life. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you beyond measure. I'm going to guard you. You're going to have it all. Look at what Abraham says in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. God says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward is exceedingly great. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? I have no child. Your blessings, what are they worth? All I want is to have a child and I have nothing. I don't want anything. All that I want is a child. And then God gives him Isaac. And where do we meet the shofar once again? When God says, all you wanted was Isaac? I'm asking you now, will you sacrifice Isaac? And Abraham has to look forward and say, with all of the brokenness and all of his hopes and all of his dreams and the promise that he would be blessed with Isaac, say, I'll give it up to you, God. And so when the moon is all but gone, at the beginning of the month, Rosh Hashanah, you can't even see the moon. All the other holidays, the moon is full. Here it's like just a tiny sliver, almost all gone. And it feels like we're lost. It's from that place, beyond ourselves, in our brokenness. From that place, we say, God, you are my king no matter what. In every generation, we had to face struggles. The Jewish people went through something much worse than the binding of Isaac. Just 80 years ago, we lost it all to evil. It was as if the devil was unleashed on earth and he had free hand on the Jews of Europe. And we suffered just like Job. And at that point, Everything that has happened 
to us happens for us. And we blow the shofar and we recommit and we say, God, from this broken place, no matter what the promise, no matter what the blessing, I'm not doing it for that. I love you. I love the good. I side with the truth. And you are the king of my life. I'm committed to the good because it's the good. And then we blow the shofar, making God king. And those two spirits, they exist in all of us. On one hand, God is the king and we'll celebrate in Jerusalem. But as long as the temple isn't built, and as long as our fellowship is scattered around the world and not dancing together in Jerusalem, as long as evil still exists in the world, we have a place inside us that's broken, outside of us and inside of us. But from that broken place, it offers us an opportunity to really make God our king. No strings attached. Pure, authentic service of the good. Because that's what Rosh Hashanah is really about. And so with all of the struggles that all of us have, everything that happens to us is happening for us to allow us to grow, to allow us to get stronger, to guide us on our path toward Jerusalem. And so when we sound the shofar this year, let it crack open our hearts to let God in and let us remember not to look back and not to look forward, but to make God king no matter what, that we are all in no matter what. And then from that, please God, we have the end of the book of Job. Job, of course, becomes wealthy remarried, a new family. That's like the sign. It's okay. It all ultimately will come around. Hakol, 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 letova. It's all for the good. Abraham didn't become the father of Isaac. He became the father of every believer in the world until today. All of us are, are his children. Imagine that, a man that just wanted one child and now has billions of children that all see him as father. And so from that place, we make God king, and may we be blessed this year with a good and sweet year, because hakolitova, everything is good, but this year may the goodness manifest itself with sweetness, so we experience God's goodness, sweet as honey. Shalom, my fellowship. I love you. Shana tova umetuka. May you all be blessed this year, blessed from Jerusalem, blessed from the land of Israel. Yevarechecha Adonai Vishmerecha, Yaer Adonai Panav Elecha Vichudeka, Isa Adonai Panav Elechim, Vyasem Lecha Shalom, Shana Tovao Mituka. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection QA events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.